0: Father, we confess that we need to be reordered, reorganized. Our heart's loves need to be resorted so that you are at the center, so that your glory, the glory of Christ, is the blazing bright center of our affections and our hearts and of our thoughts. So help us to see your glory as you've spoken of it this morning. Help us to see where we uh, fall short of that glory. And um, help us to live our lives more in accord with your teaching, more in accord with what you tell your disciples here in in this passage. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1993, the Michigan Wolverines were playing for the national championship, national basketball championship, and they're playing the North Carolina Tar Heels. They were down by a basket. They get possession. Chris Webber grabs a rebound. He, uh, he travels, side note. He travels, but they don't call it. So he dribbles down court. He gets to the other side. They're down by two. There's just seconds left on the clock. And so he does what, what, it, what, it, what makes sense, right? You got the possession. You got the ball. You made it down to your side of the court. Call timeout. He calls timeout. The only problem was that they didn't have any timeouts available, And so if you call a timeout without a timeout, that's technical. So North Carolina gets the ball. They're shooting their free throws. They get the ball following the free throws, and they go on to win the national championship. Big mistake from Chris Webber. Big mistake. Big mental error. Do you think Chris Webber ever did that again? Ever called timeout when there were no timeouts to call? Do you think he was always in his mind thinking, how many timeouts do we have left? need to make sure I remember that important fact, right? When you make a big mistake on a big stage, it sticks with you. And typically, you don't make that mistake again. I'm sure in school, you probably remember a moment where you maybe spoke out loud and said something that wasn't was kind of, you know, not a smart thing to say. And you probably it sticks with you. Not going to make that mistake again. OK, Peter keeps speaking out. And not saying the smartest things, not saying the wisest things. But here's the thing. He's saying what everybody else is thinking. Peter is sort of, he's just the one bold enough to speak. And Jesus corrects him. He corrected him last week at the foot washing. And Jesus is going to say, is, is going to correct him again. And in the process, we, disciples of Christ, are going to get great insight into what Christian discipleship looks like. Now, just to kind of recap where we are in the story, Jesus has wrapped up his public ministry. A couple weeks ago, we considered his last lecture, his last word to the world. And now he's in the quiet of a room at night, washing his disciples' feet. Judas, you remember last week, Jesus said that one one of the disciples is going to betray him. And then he actually says who it is because he gives the morsel to Judas And he says, go and do what you're doing quickly. And Judas leaves. He leaves. The door shuts behind him. Verse 31, when Judas had gone out. So Judas is left. And now Jesus has the men in his room, the disciples, whom he is going to build his church with and through. And he's going to teach them. He's going to be teaching them for chapters. We've got three chapters and then there's a prayer in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is is teaching his disciples. The men who are going to build his church and he's teaching us too. I want us to just two points this morning. First point, the glory of Christ. And then the second point, the hubris of man, the hubris of man, another word for it maybe is the pride of man. The hubris of man. So the glory of Christ and the hubris of man. Look at verse 31 again. So when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. See the word. This is a strong thing that Jesus is saying. Now is the Son of Man glorified. What does it mean? Actually, it translates better this way. Now the Son of Man has been glorified. Now what's going on? Because here's the thing. We're going to explain this in greater detail in just a moment. But His glory in John's Gospel refers to His cross, the cross. He says, now the Son of Man has been glorified. What does that mean? Because he's not on the cross. It's still a few hours away. What does it mean? Well, some have described this as a prophetic, perfect tense. Jesus is saying this act, my glory, my glorification on the cross. Now that Judah has closed the door and gone out to do what he is to do, it is so sure and certain that it is inevitable. Now has the son of man been glorified when judah left the door and the door shut behind him a new chapter opened up for all humanity a new chapter for the universe all of human history pivots on this point because once judas leaves the room and begins to 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 turn jesus over the ball is rolling the cross is right before jesus it's inevitable it's it's happening now, notice though how many times the word glory shows up in just these two verses. Count them up, there's five times in a span of two verses. This is the, the thrust of what Jesus is saying His glory. And so the question is well, what is He referring to? We said a moment ago, it's the cross, right? That's His glory. And that's unique in John's gospel. Uh, the, the other gospel writers don't speak of the cross, the cross is His humiliation, His glory is His return. John, though, says the cross is his glory. What does he mean? Well, we're going to explain that. But first, the primary question, right? What's glory? What does glory mean? We've got kind of this vague sense of what glory means, but what what exactly are we referring to? And it's an important question. Our purpose as human beings relates to glory. Remember the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What What is humanity's primary purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what, is it, what does glory mean? Chris Morgan says this. The glory of God refers to the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness and grandeur of God and his perfections. It is everything that makes God great and perfect and beautiful and true and attractive. That's the glory of God. That's what glory is. It's it's the kind of thing that we're drawn to, that our hearts long for, that we seek and desire. Now, our purpose, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify God. But here's the problem. What do we do instead? As we said earlier, we, we glorify all the things we see in creation. A beautiful car, a beautiful house, a beautiful yard, beautiful children, beautiful people, beautiful Idols, we, all kinds of stuff. We've turned from glorifying God and we've turned to his creation to seek things out there. We, we have two dogs that like to hunt squirrels. Now, I would say that they're good at it, but they're not. Because to my knowledge, they've never actually killed a squirrel, but they're very persistent. And they'll see the squirrels scurrying about in the yard and they'll chase them, hightail it down to get them. And then the squirrels go up into the trees. That's kind of their good self-defense. They get up in the trees. And then the dogs, they're not looking in the trees. What are they doing? They're sniffing around the ground, just all over. the. They're sniffing the traces of the squirrels running around the lawn, failing to realize that the squirrels are like right above them, just kind of probably laughing at them. You know, silly dogs. That's a picture of us. God made a world, and there's traces of him in the things that he has made and we, rather than look up to the creator, we got our noses to the ground, and we're looking at all the things that he has made to provide us with the things that we can only find in God himself. That's us. Okay, We're seeking glory in the creation, not the creator. But listen to this. This is what God did. Listen to what Athanasius says. Since humans reject God... And turn their eyes and heads down, right? Just like are my dogs, like sniffing the ground. Making gods that we can see, idols, mortal uh, humans, mortal things, humans. We make gods, whittle gods into those forms. We're seeking God in creation. Since that's what we do, God in his love did this. He meets us where we are. He became a human So that those who think that God is material, that is, every human being on planet Earth who wants to worship God, make God in their own image, might know the Father through Jesus, might consider the Father through Jesus. Because all of a sudden, the people who make gods in their own image have an image of God right before them. Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. And so here, Christ has been showing his glory. In fact, he says, verse thirty one. God is glorified in him, Jesus says, in in me. God's glory is present in me in the son of man, Jesus says. And we we get that, right? I mean, we've seen Jesus raise the dead back to life. We've seen Jesus calm storms just at, just a command. We've seen Jesus cast out demons and they're just perfectly obedient to him. We've seen Jesus provide wine at a party. We've seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles demonstrating his power, his glory. And the crowds flocked, didn't they? They flocked because we get that. We get that kind of glory. It's it's Jesus extending life and peace and shalom to the world. Peace to the world. We like that. But the cross, the cross, that's his glory. A crucifixion, Began with the Assyrians and was passed down through the centuries to other civilizations as the best way to strip a person of their humanity. The cross wasn't just about killing a person, they were about obliterating that person's dignity, humanity, stripping them of everything. Not to mention the pain and the torture. And here Jesus says, Jesus is about to descend into that. And here Jesus says, This is my glory. Me being pinned to a cross. How can can, I understand the cross? I understand as a Christian, right? We understand it's necessary. But to describe the cross as his glory. Here's how here's how it's his glory. Leslie Newbegin answers it. Listen to what he says. The glory of God is not the self glorification of a supreme monad. That's how we think of glory. The glory is the individual sort of beating their chest and saying, I am great. I am great. I'm powerful. That's not what God's glory is. The glory of God is the perfect, is, is, is the glory of perfect love forever poured out and forever received within the being of the triune God. When the scripture, when John says in one of his letters that God is love, That's what he means, that God, the triune, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit have been in an eternal act of self pouring themselves out for the other. And as they pour themselves out in love, the relationship is perfected. The relationship is glory. And for all eternity, the father, the son and the spirit have been pouring themselves out, relating to one another in love And all of a sudden, that love, that heavenly love that has been operative from all eternity pours down to earth in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he's showing us what that love is like. And he's about to give us the best picture of that love, his death on a cross, on a cross. The world is on the cusp of seeing the glory of God displayed. But admittedly, it's hard to see. It's hard to see It's going to be hard to see. It's going to be hard to understand. It won't make sense to flesh and blood. And he said that Christ has said so. It will not make sense. And the reason it won't make sense is because we are blinded by our own pride, our own hubris. Now I want us to now shift from the glory of Christ to the hubris of man. Our own pride uh, blinds us to these truths. And they can't be known apart from the Spirit of God awakening us, opening our, lifting the veils on our eyes to see. And Jesus understands this. Look at what he says, verse 33. Little children. And he's being endearing here. He's not He's not like putting them down. Like you little idiots, you kids, you little, you know, child brains. Not. I don't mean to dismiss child brains. Um, <laughs> You, little, you, you don't understand what I'm saying. No, he's saying little children. Like, dear children, my, my beloved, a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter, again, doesn't get it. I would say, I would venture to say none of the disciples get it. But Peter's the only one bold enough to actually say something. And he speaks boldly. He speaks boldly on behalf of the disciples. And he also speaks boldly on behalf of us. Because what emerges is a dialogue that's very helpful for us to understand Christian discipleship. So let's see what he says. Verse 36. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going? You cannot follow me. You will follow me afterward. So Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, there's a lot to say here. There's a lot to explore. But I want to focus just on Peter's bold claim. "I, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I will give my life for you. Now, what is Peter doing? He's doing what we do all the time. He's underestimating the work of Christ and overestimating his own work, his own ability to bring change to the matter. He's underestimating the, the need, the necessity, and, and, and the need for the work of Christ, for his going. And he's overestimating his own going. Like, I will give my life for you. Peter, in his own estimation, is, is, is big, and, and, and also, but by, consequently, the work of Christ becomes less important. It actually sounds humble what Peter is saying, but it's not, it's hubris. And, ver, and Jesus responds, verse 38, what does he say? Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Like, Peter, you entrapped in death, you who need to be born again, as Jesus said in John 3, you are going to give your life for me, life, I'm life, life personified. And you think you can give your life for me? It's, it correlates to the foot washing, doesn't it? Remember Peter saying, Lord, you, I wash your feet. And Jesus says, look, if you, if you won't have me wash your feet, you can have no fellowship with me. You can have no relationship with me. You cannot have me as Lord if you won't accept me as servant. And now Peter says the same thing. Lord, you shouldn't die. I'll die for you. My life for your life. And Jesus says the same thing. You, you, Peter, that's not your prerogative. That's not, your, that's not how this works. It's like, imagine a patient, uh, uh, somebody that's in an emergency situation. They're dying. They're bleeding. And everything's just falling apart. And they're in the ER. They've been rushed. Uh, and, and the ER doctors are scrambling to try to bring this person back to life. And the patient says to the staff, the nurse and the doctors, you guys shouldn't. You shouldn't. I, I don't want to trouble you. It's a Friday night. You probably have family that you need to get back to. Uh, please stop. Don't. Don't. This is messy right here. Please stop. Now, it, si- it sounds very kind for that patient that's on the deathbed to say that kind of Thing. And it sounds it's, it's like filled with middle class respectability. But it's a complete misunderstanding of the situation. The person is dying and they're desperate for a doctor, a physician to heal them. And they need to receive that care. Peter is in that situation. He, he misunderstands the situation. He misunderstood it at the foot washing. And now he misunderstands it again. And the impulse of Peter Peter's impulse leads to all kinds of problems in Christian discipleship. What Peter says is the same kind of thing we tend to say as disciples of Christ. It's what happens when we minimize our need for Christ and overestimate our own contribution. While Peter is is talking about laying down his life, Christ says, verse thirty eight. Surely, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me three times in the next few hours. See, Peter is, is operating out of a common view of Christian discipleship that places all the stress on the disciple and not the discipler. All the stress on the, the one who is saved and not the Savior, Christ. And it's subtle, too. This is how it, it goes something like this. Christian discipleship is primarily about what I do for the Lord. And so we go, we, do, we go out and we do big things for the Lord. Praise God. But when we go far down this path, and if we've forgotten Christ as Savior, we, we lose sight of Christ crucified, if, if in the spiritual landscape of our lives, the cross shrinks, you know what happens? We get bigger. We, we, we get inflated. And we begin to think like ever so subtly that it's my service projects on work, Saturday work days. Or it's my ability to lead a Bible study. Or it's my ability to raise kids or to teach or to do my job well or to evangelize at the coffee shop or whatever it is. And here's what happens. When you start kind of inflating your own sense of your awesomeness at being a Christian disciple, you start looking down on others. The people that don't show up every Sunday or the people that don't evangelize in the coffee shops or the people that have kids that are real just difficult kids that aren't, It doesn't seem like they're being well-discipled. You start looking down. You start thinking yourself more powerful than you are. And you live under the illusion that you are more committed to Christ than you actually are. You think that it's actually your commitment to Christ and not his commitment to you that's driving this whole thing. It's his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. I mean, Peter, Peter likely thinks in both, both the foot washing and here. And I'm the best of these disciples. Like I, I'm I'm the I'm the bold one. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna lay down my life. And yet he's about to betray him three times. Christian discipleship is rooted in the cross, it's rooted in the work of Christ. Christian discipleship is primarily not about what you do, but about what Christ has done for you. So, if Christian discipleship is primarily about what Christ has done and less about what I do, that means I just put my foot off the gas and lay back and relax, right? I just kind of coast in this thing. Is that what that means? No, that's not what it means. Look at verse 34. Jesus gives a new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you. And what is it? That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The commandment is simple. Love one another. That's it. But look at where this love is rooted. It's in in the love of Christ. You see it here. He says, just as I have loved you. It's not even entirely clear from the translation here, but 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 the, the connection is causal. Jesus is saying, my love for you causes your love to go out into the world, your love to go out to others, to love others. It's the cause. Jesus is saying, you go and you pour your little love buckets of, of love on the world, but you can do that only to the extent that you draw from the ocean of love that is me it is my love the love of the father because remember you can't give what you don't have we can't we don't have the love necessary to love one another so what do we do we draw from the well we draw from Christ and we pour out our love drawing from him remember uh, last week at our service uh, of organization it was a very wonderful night and you remember Pastor at Heritage, uh, Mike Philibert, gave me a charge, and he he said, He said to be like Paul, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had a big heart for his churches, a big heart for the church at Corinth, a big heart for the church at Thessalonica. To have a big heart. Remember what he said? Remember what Paul was doing just not many years before? He was persecuting the church. Paul was a committed. Christian persecutor. He was, he was happy if Christians found themselves in prison. He would have been happy to see Christians executed. But then what happened? So in other words, Paul has a tiny little heart before his conversion. And then Jesus, what happens? Jesus grabs a hold of him on the road to Damascus, saves him, pours his love into him, the love of infinite, mighty God, pours that into him. And then all of a sudden, Paul is... Undergoing incredible suffering, pouring his life out for these churches. He starts describing himself. It's almost embarrassing language for him. He he describes himself as a nursing mother to these churches, nurturing and caring for them. He describes himself as a father exhorting his churches. He's all of a sudden gone from having tiny heart to big heart, huge heart, supernaturally enlarged heart. Because it has been enlarged. Because Christ grabbed him and poured his love into him. And now now Paul is taking the buckets of the ocean of love that is Christ. And he's pouring it to the churches. And guess what? That kind of love is evangelistic. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That love is... Of, of, of the disciples loving one another, loving the churches, loving the, the body, demonstrates the truthfulness of the claims of Christ. He's going to say this again in the high priestly prayer. It has an evangelistic effect. And this brings us to a, a key concept that we, we have been emphasizing at this church since well before we began, all the way back to 2019. Ray Ortland says gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals the power of God at work. And so we, through song, through sermon, through sacrament, have been trying to communicate the gospel and gospel doctrine every week. And then as that works itself into our bones, it begins to work itself out of us in the form of, of a gospel culture in the form of people loving one another. And I have been encouraged so much to see many who have been showing up at our church speak of the palpable sense of love that they've experienced here, the welcoming nature of this church, the warmth that they've experienced in this church. That's encouraging. That's a work of the Spirit. As the gospel is preached, it begins to work itself out of us it works in and then it works out and that's that's an encouragement last week the pastors that were here from the from the from this area many pastors were here many of them noted about what a wonderful congregation we have they felt the warmth and the love and so that gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals the power of god at work in a setting and i believe that what that what we've seen in this congregation since our inception is the power of god at work subtly quietly almost hiddenly but if you pay attention you can see it and it's encouraging Let me make another note on this. I, one of you that has joined this church in the last year remarked about the songs that we sing. And, and, and um, you have mentioned just how they kind of really, they really talk a lot about sin, don't they? How do, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's the kind of thing you downplay, right? Sin? I mean, people. that's not a popular topic. No, but we want we want to develop our vocabulary for sin, because as we see our sin more clearly, it's not to make us more depressed. It's to see the love of Christ more deeply, to get a little bucket of love from the ocean of Christ. He really does love me. And it enables us to go out and love more and to not look down on others that we think are somehow not as good as us in the Christian life. What we're talking about here is cruciform living. A life shaped by the cross, the glory of Christ. Life lived in light of the cross. And it's a powerful thing. This ragtag group of disciples that's sitting there scratching their heads. They're not poor. They're not well educated by world standards. They are. I mean, they're being trained by God himself, but, you know, good teacher. But but. They've not, they don't have the worldly education. They don't have the worldly background. They don't have the kinds of things you would expect would transform the world. And yet, here is Jesus teaching them these things. And he's going to pour, when he goes up to heaven, he's going to pour his spirit down upon them. And Peter is going to emerge in front of thousands at Pentecost. And he's going to preach the gospel. And thousands will convert to Christianity. And Peter and Paul and the other apostles are going to build the church of Christ in the world. And look at what Jesus says. He alludes to Peter's death here, verse 36. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. These apostles were were killed for their ministry, for their gospel proclamation. And Peter is said to have been crucified uh, just as Christ was. But he said one thing was different. When they were crucifying him, he said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy of a crucifixion as, as good as my Lord. And so tradition has it, it's not in the scriptures, but tradition has it that, Christ, that Peter was crucified upside down. And G.K. Chesterton commenting on this said, the upside down crucifixion of St. Peter was a time when Peter saw the world as it really is. With the stars like flowers, the clouds like hills, and every man hanging by the mercy of God See what what Peter saw in his upside-down crucifixion is the world as it really is That's our starting point All of humanity is hanging by the mercy of God We're dangling by it and God in his grace has come to us to rescue us That's what Jesus is saying It's his glory He's pouring this love out to those in need of it, those in need of his grace, in need of his mercy. And out of that flows the love of his church. It's a cascade of love. The, the, the triune love of God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, cascading down from all eternity. When Christ entered the world, heaven came down with it. The, cascade, the fountain of love that is God poured down onto earth. And Jesus is showing us it. And his cross is the pinnacle of that love poured down. He, he said it in John chapter 3. For God's, Jesus said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have deep, everlasting life. This love, Jesus says, is his glory. The cross is a cascade of triune love. Come down and we get, we get swept up into it. We get swept up into it. And it starts leaking out of us as we love one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your glory. It is not anything that any human would concoct. It, it just, it just is, it seems so from heaven. It's out of this world. And we thank you that it does defy our expectations. It defies what we would, what we would expect. Um, because that lends itself to its truth. We don't need another human solution. We get those every day in the form of advertisements. We need something greater. We need the love of our Creator to enter into us and to, to arrive in our hearts, and you've done that. So we thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.